I have spent the past couple weeks racking my brain trying to find a modern-day equivalent to ancient Corinth. Someone suggested maybe Phoenix City, Alabama. Um, But I thought about that, and I didn't know whether it was more of an insult to Phoenix City or Corinth. If you know anything about the history of Phoenix City... And I've concluded that there isn't a comparison. Corinth was a unique place. It was a place of ideas. It sat there on an isthmus separating the Gulf of Corinth from the Aegean Sea. And a lot of times trade and commerce, instead of sailing all the way around uh, Greece, they would sail into Corinth. And instead of a con- there's a canal there now, but what they would do is they would load ships on rolling logs and bring them to the other side. And so you had people from all over the world, east meeting west, ideas being circulated. Uh, There was a huge premium placed upon wisdom, and there were places in Corinth like most Greek cities. You remember Paul at the Areopagus on Mars Hill talking about the temple to the unknown god. And even there, there was a sort of Hyde Park scene, if you've ever been to London. And there you have speakers that will get up and talk about whatever it is that they want to talk about. Uh, And people will listen if they want to listen. And every once in a while, if the speakers are close enough, you can hear them uh, begin to exchange ideas with one another. And there was a premium placed on eloquence and uh, frame of thought. And that's what they were about. But also, uh, being a Navy town, it was a place for a good time. The temple to Aphrodite was notorious uh, for things that went on there. And so known was Corinth for its licentiousness that even in the ancient world, when someone was up to no good, they would refer to them as a Corinthian. And here it was that Paul came and had a ministry. You may think, well, this is the perfect place for the gospel to be preached because, boy, do they need it. And yet... There was a strategic importance to Corinth, which I've just said a little bit about. But if you do the math in Acts and in the letter to the Corinthians here, you know that Paul was in Corinth at the time of the Isthmian Games, which were second only to the Olympic Games. People would come all over to participate and to watch these games. And in Acts, we know that this is where Paul applied his trade as a tent maker probably making tents for these games, for people coming in from all over the place. And it was here that Paul preached the gospel. And yet here is Paul coming into this great metropolis with a cosmopolitan feel to it. And yet he is no urbane city dweller. He comes in great weakness. You know, a lot of people, if you ask, well, when you get to heaven, who do you want to sit down and and talk with? And a lot of people will say St. Paul. Uh, But from St. Paul's own pen, uh, we find that he was not a particularly good preacher. Stylistically, his content clearly was was very good. But uh, there were so many who were better preachers than he was. And he often says, I I came in humility and great weakness. And I was not eloquent. Uh, I simply put the message out there, and in a town where the premium was placed upon wisdom, people began to look down on that. And so when great preachers would come through, like Apollos, who was a better preacher than Paul, they had an interaction in Ephesus, and Paul said, Apollos is a good preacher. 
And Apollos wasn't trying to stir up any controversy or divisiveness, and yet people began to rally around Apollos. Uh, But nonetheless, what we find is when St. Paul preaches the gospel, or anybody preaches the gospel in the New Testament, lives are changed. And it's not because of the power of the personality, because it's the power of the message. And not just the message, because he's not simply putting out an idea of, here's how you ought to live your life, oh, woe to you, Corinthians. But he's putting forth a person. He's talking about the person of Jesus Christ. He's talking about a birth, a life, and a death. And by the power of the Holy Spirit... God uses even weak Paul to proclaim this message, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, people come to faith in Jesus Christ. So people see Paul, and they listen to Paul, and not just his look and appearance, but also his message, and they think, this is foolishness. Where is the eloquence of our speakers? Where is the the thrust and power of his argument and point and, and counterpoint? He's simply telling us a story about a man. And not just that, a man who he says is God, but we know what God looks like. He Gods live in great temples and we have great statues to them. And you tell me that God came to earth and was born in a feeding trough? And he grew up in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He showed great promise and uh, things seemed to be going well for about three years. And he came into Jerusalem and people put down their coats and waved palm branches and cried, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet just a number of days later, he was crucified like a common criminal. That's the craziest story I've ever heard. And you want me to give my life over to him? That's folly. That is folly. And yet, every other world religion, every other philosophy in the world either says that God is very far off, you need, you need human beings to go between you and the temple to be able to mediate with God. There's something that you have to do in order to maintain fellowship and right standing with God. And if you're extra good, he'll bless you. Or even worse yet, God may be out there, but you're totally on your own. God helps those who help themselves. One day I'll write a book about things that Jesus never said. And still today in the world, like in Corinth, they hear Christianity and they say, that's not for me. That's foolishness. It's so simple. And yet what Christianity says is God has condescended and come near. He's come to you for you. And Paul talks about this in the context of divisions in the church. And when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The verb that he uses to appeal to them is the same verb that is used in the Gospel of Luke, in the story of the prodigal son. When the father, after seeing the return of his young prodigal son home, throws a party for him. But then the older brother shows up who's been dutifully working in the field, who has it all together, 
who is smart, who is sharp, who is the man that you want to be your son. And he says to the servant, what is this party? Well, your younger brother has returned and your father has killed the fattened calf and they're having a party for him. He has returned. He refuses to go in. And so the father leaves the party and comes out to him. This is the second time that the father has not only humbled himself to those who are separated from him, but he's humiliated himself. In the first instance, he hikes up his robes and runs down the road to meet his young son who is coming up. Dads in the ancient Near East did not run unless somebody was chasing them. And then here, the host would never leave the party to approach an ungrateful, indignant, self-righteous son. And yet the father humiliates himself and goes out and meets the older brother and appeals to him and says, Son, everything that I have belongs to you. That is the mark of Jesus Christ's relationship and disposition toward his people. He not only humbles himself, he humiliates himself. And St. Paul is saying in any human relationship that you have, if it's a real genuine relationship marked by love, it's going to be marked by one thing, primarily, and that's sacrifice. And you know that that's true. If you're in any relationship with anyone, whether it be a spouse or a child or a friend, if you don't experience sacrifice in that relationship, it's no relationship at all. I once preached a sermon about lies that people tell you about marriage. Another book in the waiting. And one of the things that people say is marriage is about compromise. Well, that's not true. Marriage is about sacrifice. At any given moment, somebody's getting steamrolled. There has to be a setting aside of yourself for the other person. Laying your life down and not just... Being willing to take a bullet for the person that you love, but actually putting aside your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, your status, your whole life for the other person. And that is such a small reflection of what Jesus Christ does for us, that he empties himself of all but love. He sets aside himself and comes and dwells among us and is born in a manger. He humiliates himself and he humbles himself that we might be known and the world sees this as folly unless, unless you're one of those people like me. There are times that you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you just wish that you were different. You wish that you were somebody else. You've tried everything that you can try to change and yet it's no different And you think, if people really knew me as I am, I wonder what they would say. Would they be willing to get steamrolled for me? I don't think so. And yet God sees us as we are in our unloveliness. And he saves us. He comes and he rescues us from the miry clay And sets our feet upon a rock. He takes the face that we see in the mirror. When all we see is condemnation. And by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the gospel message. He washes it. And makes it clean. And makes it whole. 
so that we can stand and boast in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. That is why those to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. It's our everything. Without it, we are hopelessly lost. And we're not even ourselves. And so this morning, the world might look at the cross and see it as folly. And yet we look to a crucified Savior and know that to us, it is the very power of God. Amen.